It's great to see some faces. Glad to have you up and around today. Um, you always know when you're getting um, somebody from the bullpen that that means Sandy's out of town. Uh, Sandy, as many of you know, is uh, on the board of World Relief. And uh, as Bobby mentioned in his prayers, it's not just here in Memphis, but it's really all around the world. Just devastation and tragedy. And uh, just glad for his role in trying to marshal resources to help people in crisis and to do it in the context of the local church in that area. Uh, I'm glad to be with you today. And uh, let me just start by saying this. Um, a number of weeks ago, on a Saturday morning, a guy named uh, Michael Ramsden uh, kind of passed through Memphis. Uh, Michael Ramsden is the uh, European director of Ravi Zacharias Ministries. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Ravi Zacharias. Okay. If you don't ha- have your hand up, don't feel shamed, like you don't know something important, but he's just a phenomenal Christian leader and author, uh, and Michael Ramsden is, uh, is all those things, too. I, you know, he's sort of C.S. Lewis-esque, uh, works in the context of Oxford. All that to say, when he passed through, he, uh, he rebooted or clarified for me uh, a term the term was Christian atheism. And uh, he, he began to unpack that idea that there are not just philosophical atheists, but there are practical Christian atheists, which is to say that they believe in God. They will say they believe in God. And yet their lives uh, really are lived in direct contradiction to what a scripture says, what God would have them to do. Um, that uh, time spent and some personal interaction I, I had with uh, with Michael kind of got me fired up about this whole idea. Why is it that folk like us have all this knowledge? I mean, you've just mastered the entire book of Deuteronomy. Some of you, if I just pointed to you, could just, because you've memorized the entire book, just like the rabbis used to. And anybody want to stand up and do that this morning? Just start off. Uh, I wouldn't. But we get even more knowledge. This morning, I'm going to give you a little bit more information and a little bit more knowledge. And then we go out into our world, and there's a real departure between what we say we believe and how we live. And for me, that uh, it prompted not only some new thinking, but a series that I have been teaching in this room on Sunday mornings. And if you're a part of that class, just, I just want to say up front, I'm going to make a comment or two that um, I have made in the past, but... I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to give a warmed-over talk that I gave in Sunday school. So if you're in the class, what that really means is you can't leave. You've got to stay here and see what else I'm going to say. But this idea of Christian atheism was concretized for me in a recent trip that I took to Chicago. I don't travel nearly as much as some of you all travel. But one of the things I enjoy about traveling is engaging in conversation with whoever's sitting next to me. I consider this the ultimate um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, somebody who can't leave. What's the word for that? Thank you very much, John. I just want to see if you're awake. You're with me now, okay? The ultimate captive audience. You're captivated now. Because where are they going to go? You know, maybe to the laboratory or something. They're certainly not going to get out of the plane. So I feel like I've got a chance to really hunker down and have some soul talk. And on the way to Chicago, I engaged in a conversation with a guy about my age kind of business professional guy. And we talked a little bit. And then he asked me this question, Rocky, what do you do in Memphis? 
And I said, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm a Presbyterian minister. And in that moment, everything changed about him. His body language changed. His facial expressions changed. And he, gla- he started to glare at me. And these are some of the things that he said. I, I hate Christianity. He said, I, I think Christians are hypocrites. I think they are bigots. I think they're narrow. They're angry. And uh, I've never met a Christian that, uh, that I've ever been impressed with. Rocky, no offense to you. <laughs> That's just how it went. I'm like, listen, bro, tell me what you really think. I'd like to know what you really think. He was an atheist, and he was proud. He was a cultivated atheist. And then on the way home from Chicago, I sat next to kind of uh, next to uh, two women who were just returning from a trip they had taken to Jamaica, an all-inclusive trip. Now, some of you in this room know what that means. That means basically, you get to wherever you're staying, and you can eat as much as you want, and you can. Sleeps, you're showing your age, some of you, but you can also drink as much as you want. And these ladies wanted me to know in no uncertain terms that they absolutely got their money's worth. In fact, sitting next to them, their skin was sort of oozing rum. I could just sort of smell it in the row. And they're telling me about a few of their Jamaican escapades, and they were pretty interesting. And then the question, so Rocky, what do you do in Memphis? Well, I'm a Presbyterian minister. And their, their faces lit up. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, we're Christians. And uh, we love God. And we, you know, they kind of told me the story of, you know, a camp meeting they went to. And um, we know we're not doing everything the way that we're supposed to. And we're probably not supposed to be living with our boyfriends, which they were. Um, and then it sort of turned into a time of confession. I think they thought... Presbyterian priest, I don't know. So they started like confessing some of their sins to me. It was really interesting. And then when we left, and I and I, I actually kind of put it in my phone because it was just so profound. This is what one woman said to me as we were kind of packing up to leave. You know, I, I know my life doesn't look like what a Christian life is supposed to look like, but I do believe in God. It's true, isn't it? that there can be different kind of atheists. There can be a philosophical atheist who rejects any claim of of truth, divinity, authority of scripture. And then there can be a practical or a Christian atheist. And and I think that kind of atheist is is maybe far more dangerous because they they think down deep they're, they're in good shape, but they're living as if God doesn't exist. They go through their day and they feel like everything is on them. When they think about decisions that they make, pretty much they'd say, my time, my money, my choices, my agenda, those decisions are for me to determine. I can obey or not obey uh, as I please. And there's this gap between what people say they believe and how we live. And um, I've been thinking about that, and I've been thinking about our time together this morning. I know we're wrapping up the study of Deuteronomy. And so what I want to talk about is, and this is important to get on the front end, how we view, how we receive the truth of God's word, get this, that's not just informational, but transformational. Not just that we load up on more information, but in a way that really changes us from the inside out. 
So I'd like you, we're going to go back, we're still in the book of Deuteronomy, um, and I'd like to go back to uh, the section where Moses is given the Ten Commandments, and then he gives those to the people. And you all know already exactly where it is. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So go there. Go there, Deuteronomy 5. And while you're turning, uh, let me just um, maybe set up uh, some of what I want to say here initially uh, by just talking about our our struggle uh, with authority. Authority in our day is not a real popular subject. Many of us who have children or, or maybe we're hiring uh, younger people into our business network and there's this suspicion of authority, even a sense of contempt, all sorts of reasons for that. But what we're living in a culture where people don't want to be under somebody else's authority, even God's, and what they really want to experience is this word freedom. Imagine this. You're driving down 240. You're, you're late for a downtown meeting. You see the blue sirens behind you. Officer Joe pulls you over. He comes to the window, and, and you try this one. Officer, I just didn't feel authentic about having to go 55 miles an hour today. When I drive, I like to be guided by my deep inner voice, and my deep inner voice was telling me, go faster, go faster. You can go 90. You should go 90. So, officer, don't try to impose your rules on me. When I'm driving, I want to be free. Question, how would that work? My friend Price Morrison is right here, my personal helper. Don't ever try that in Piperton County. It'll never work there. Been there, done that. Imagine the IRS, IRS guy knocks on your door. He says, you know, the government has noticed you haven't paid taxes in 10 years. So you try this one. I understand that paying taxes may work for other people, but for me, it would be kind of hypocritical. If I were going to give some of my money to the government, it would not reflect my deepest passions and values. So don't try to impose your rules on my money. I want to be free. We have words for people like that. I think we call them criminals. Why do I give you that? Because in the book of Deuteronomy, we've been learning what God had in mind when he gave us his guidance. He gave us his law, his word. And there are different ways to receive this truth given in his word. There are some who view truth of scripture as something very narrow, very limited, kind of a straitjacket. And I'll confess to you, there are certainly times in my own life, B.C., before Christ, when as, a, as an adolescent, I basically came to this conclusion. Uh, God knows all the things in life that are fun, and he's made commandments not to allow me to do any of them. So God is sort of the ultimate joy killer. I mean, if, if, if becoming a Christian, does that mean that somebody else gets to tell me what to do and how to think and how to live? If I were to become a Christian, would I miss out on being free, being fully alive, missing out on all the good stuff? Would I be able to have an open mind? Would I be able to decide for myself what I think is right and what I think is wrong? People receive the truth of God's word, many people, in that same way. I'll choose what to believe and act on and what not to. 
There's another way to receive the instruction of God's word. And sadly, sadly, I think many devout Presbyterians and even some veteran, crusty, old-timer, amen Bible study guys struggle with this too. I've already alluded to it. To receive it as information, as content, good good information, but it stays cognitive. It remains on the intellectual level and not the heart. We come to church. We come to Amen Bible study. We hear truth. We agree with it intellectually, but it doesn't change us. It doesn't transform us. It doesn't reshape or reform or remold our inner world. These are really important questions and concerns which lead me to ask this. What do you do about that? How do we receive God's instruction in a way that brings about transformation? Not just to be a better informed sinner, but to be changed, to grow more and more into the likeness and the image of Jesus. And I'll tell you why this is important. This is important because God is in the transformation business. Behold, I am in Christ. I am a new creation. The old things are gone. Behold, all things are becoming new. How does that happen? So I was thinking maybe a helpful way to spend our time this morning is to scroll back and reset Deuteronomy 5. Sandy refers to the Ten Commandments in this section as general covenantal stipulations, which is to say this is a larger framework that God is giving us how to live. And last time Sandy included this clip, and my assistant D. Walker was kind enough to transcribe it for me. Just get these words from SW last week. There are general stipulations and then there are specific stipulations to covenantal living. Deuteronomy has shown us how to live in every area of life, taking every word of God and applying it in all of life. We want to bring everything under his lordship, every aspect, every word, every thought, every deed, Our physical life, our psychological life, our intellectual life, our recreational life, our economic life, our family life, everything. We bring it under his lordship. This is a holistic life lived according to the wisdom of God's word. How beautiful is that? And again, the question is, how do we make that come alive? Where we ended last week was with this statement. The the simple way to understand covenantal living. Moses puts it this way. Just choose life. There are blessings and there are curses. And you have to decide which way you're going to live. How are you going to live? And we hear that and something deep within us says, that's the right answer. That's the way to really live. But the joker in the deck is, When I go out into my world, that sort of clarity of thinking seems to evaporate. And I begin to look and behave as if I'm just another practical atheist walking the streets of Memphis. What would it look like for us to follow God's covenantal instructions and stipulations? And why is that so important? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to roll back and reread the Ten Commandments. I'm going to maybe ask you to go um, down that list with me using your handout, uh, maybe rather than your text. I'll be reading more text here, but we're not going to read every word of every 
commandment. But I, I want to I say this before, before we read those. It's essential, brothers, essential to remember the life experience of these people who are receiving these words. They had been in Egypt for many of them, for most of them. That's all they'd ever, ever known, generation after generation. They had developed a slave mentality. And so when God speaks to them, the goal in the heart of God is is not just to get uh, them out of Egypt, but to get Egypt out of them and to allow them to experience a new way of living, a, a new identity. And so this is the, the, these are the first uh, opening words here, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Hear, hear God's word. All the people are assembled, they're gathered together, and then Moses speaks. And moments, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord your God made a covenant with us in Horeb, Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here, alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time. We'll come back to that phrase. To declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain. Again, this is... This is given to people, not in a legalistic way, not in a, this is what you've got to do in order to get it right and live right and please me. God is saying, this is the way for you to live so that you'll be free from the kind of moralistic slavery that has been pounded into you for century upon century. Verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You former slaves, I want you to listen to this message of hope. You were a slave, but you're no longer a slave. Now you're a treasure possession. You're a priest. You're uh, redeemed. You have value. You have dignity. And, and God is making a, a covenant uh, with them. And I just want to make one more comment, and I keep making one more comment so this will be the last one more comment that I'm going to make. This is, the, this is important. This is the only time in all the Bible where a revelation is given to a people. Normally, God gives a revelation to an individual. God gave a revelation to Noah. God gave a revelation to Abraham. God gives a revelation at different times to Moses, Paul, others. But in this context, God gives a revelation to the entire community. This is unheard of. Makes a covenant with the entire community. Why is that important? Because what God is trying to do is to say, as a group, as a, as a people, I have a dream for you. I have a destiny for you. And, and here's how you're going to live out that destiny. Here are, here's the roadmap for living. And so he gives the first command. And this morning, uh, we're going to actually say these together. So let's say together uh, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It's interesting because this is more of a statement than it is a command. God is saying there there is a God, and uh, that means that other things are not gods like you. And sometimes 
even at this hour in the morning, we need to be reminded that, that there is a God in heaven and we're not him. Why don't you turn to the guy next to you and smile and just say, bro, you are not God. Thank you. You don't have to tell him why you think that. Just tell him that. You, have, you shall have no other gods before me. Let's read the second commandment. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image. God says, I want complete allegiance. Don't give your heart. Don't give your soul to anything else that is man-made or temporal. Let's read the third command. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You may have studied this. For some of you, this will be review. For those of you who have long-term memory problems, this will be new. (laughs) But there's a shift here that takes place in the third command forward. Because up until this point, everything's in in first person, right? Uh, in, in, In command one and two. But when you get to command three, it's now in third person. Somebody is talking to them about God. And you have to ask the question, what happened here? And again, maybe you studied this in detail. But remember when we read the opening words of chapter five, and Moses is reminding the people, I stood between you and God. You would not go up to the mountain, but I did. Uh, a scholar I read yesterday, it brought kind of a new insight into this. And it just reveals the holiness and the transcendence, the kind of uh, majestic glory that was terrifying to Isaiah when he fell on his face. That the glory and the power of God was so brilliant, so um, hot, it was like a fire, that the people said, Moses, We can't stand and just listen to God talking to us face-to-face like he did in commandment one and two. Moses, you've got to step in. You've got to protect us from the awesome holiness of God. And so from this point forward, it's Moses telling them about God, telling them what God says. I love that little insight. And so that leads us to the fourth commandment. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. And you've studied this. Honor God uh, in taking a day off for worship and for rest. Cease from your labor. Put God first. Reorient your whole life around the Sabbath day. Fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you. The word could be cherished. The word could be treasure. Treasure your parents, especially in their older years, Uh, even when that's hard, even when there's a a cranky factor that's just kind of getting worse and worse and worse. Honor them. Cherish them. Commandment six, you shall not murder. What does this involve? It involves uh, not carrying around grudges, not um, thinking badly about other people, but actually wanting good things from them. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. The Hebrew word here also includes this idea of lust. Um, If it was given in our day, it would certainly allude to where you browse and what you see on your Internet, which is a form of adultery. A great story about a little fella 
VBS. He's trying to memorize the Ten Commandments, and he gets to this one, and it comes out kind of wrong. Thou shalt not admit adultery. <laughs> no, that's exactly wrong. That's exactly wrong. Uh, commandment number eight. You shall not steal. Be a giver. Don't be a taker. Sometimes we steal people's reputations. Sometimes we steal the hope and the self-esteem of those that we love the most. Don't steal that stuff. Some of us have younger kids who are dating. We only have one daughter. I'm, I'm vigilant about her. And, and remind anybody who wants to date her, you may not steal anything from her. I, I just think it helps to have a Colt 45 right there in the middle of that conversation. <laughs> Actually, a friend of mine, that's exactly what he does. I'm like, man, that's scary. I, I don't know. I don't think your daughter's ever going to get married. But he, he likes the idea. Um, ninth commandment. Uh, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Be a person of integrity. Speak truth. Learn to build uh, other people up. It's amazing what we can do to the reputation of another person by just a cutting word, a word of sarcasm, a, a misplaced word, a broken confidence. Uh, commandment 9. We just did that one. Commandment 10. Uh, you shall not covet. Interesting, this is the only one that really talks about um, not just behavior, but the attitude of our hearts. It goes on to talk about what's going on in here. Ten Commandments. When they were given to the people of God, it transformed not only them, but it transformed the world. The world was changed. So here's the question. When these words were given to Israel and now to us, were they just trading one form of slavery for another? They were enslaved to Pharaoh in Egypt, and now God steps in and God says, now um, I want you to follow me. Were they just swapping one slavery for, for another? When we bind ourselves to God, uh, to his code of morality and transcendence and our own particular options, do we lose freedom or do we gain freedom? Kind of a critical question. Because how you and I answer that, how we receive, how we view the wisdom and truth of God, that dictates the way we live it out. Or to say it another way, how we receive God's truth works itself out in our daily lives. And so here's what I want to do in the time that we have left. I want to talk about this is kind of lower shelf because I know you're, you guys are all semi-brain dead after all the good conversations and teaching you've had on, on Deuteronomy. I'm just going to give you two points today. Two reasons for choosing to obey God. To view the law of God not just as information or regulation, but as life-giving instruction for how you live. And to understand that the way God made you formed you, created you. This roadmap for living is consistent with the way things really are. It's a statement about the way reality is supposed to be uh, embraced and viewed and lived out in our daily lives. So why should I choose the path of obedience? Here's the first point for us. Obedience to God actually increases the freedom that matters most to human beings. Stay with me on this. 
probably two different ways to look at this idea of freedom. One would be a freedom from, and that might be in relationship to, uh, to external restraints. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. In fact, there was a TV show, I was thinking about this yesterday, that was on some years ago, and there was a, a song, kind of a refrain in this TV show, went like this, you're not the boss of me, you're not the boss of me, you're not the boss of me. And uh, that turned out to be some kind of a hit, like a rap song. Sometimes I, I, uh, I'll go home and Tracy, my sweet wife, will say, hey, you know, there's some things I really need you to do. Here's your list of things I need you to do. And you know what I say to her? You're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> Question. How's that work for me, Sean? <laughs> There's a freedom from external constraints. And get this. There's another kind of freedom. What you might call a freedom for. There's a freedom for living the kind of life I was meant to live. Freedom for becoming the man I most want to be. Freedom for. The main way we tend to think about freedom in our day and in our society is really freedom from all these external restraints. We want to be free. We want to be generally define freedom from uh, whatever anybody else has for me. Sounds like this, an inner voice. Sounds like this. Uh, when, I find this uh, when I find this strange thing... I, I am free to drink as much as I want, and so I do. And then it starts to get a kind of hold on me. It starts to damage my health. It starts to embarrass my kids. It starts to hurt my marriage. It starts to threaten my work. So I try to quit. And then I find I'm not free not to drink. Free to drink as much as I want, yes, but I want to be free, and I'm not free not to drink. Why? Because I'm a slave to it. It turns out that my freedom is not restricted simply by external restraints. There's another kind of, of, of conviction or constriction. My freedom gets limited by an internal reality that has to do with my brokenness and my weakness and my dividedness that's deep inside me. I want to stop drinking, but I can't. I want to be cheerful and optimistic and loving, but I don't. I want to stop yelling at my kids. I want to be the kind of person who manages their anger well, but I, I'm not doing that. I like to think that I have become unselfish, but I haven't. I'm not free. The freedom I lack is an internal freedom. And this internal freedom is much more dehumanizing, much more tragic than any external constraints. So how do I get that freedom? Well, when it comes to drinking, a lot of us know this. A lot of people in this room have experienced this. It begins when I admit that I'm powerless, that I don't have enough willpower on my own. External constraints alone are not going to get me there. It begins by surrendering my life and will over to God, admitting to him that I need his help. And by his grace and through his power and inner work of transformation, I receive the power not to drink. This reality has changed millions of lives. 
I recognize there's an order. Get this. A moral order, a spiritual order, a way things are designed. And I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not the master of my fate. I'm not the captain of my ship. There is a God, and it ain't me. I have a new nature. And that freedom comes when I live in light of, in line with that new nature. And biblical writers touch on this all throughout Scripture. I've just given you two examples of this. The connection between God's law and freedom. Psalm 19, 92 and and 93. If your law has not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts. Look at this. For by them you have given me freedom, life. Look at these words from James 1, 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law that gives freedom, the law that gives freedom, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is all about freedom. When I make my desires my God, I always end up a slave. Always. When I submit my desires to God, it always leads to freedom. Always. Always. So here's the statement. The freedom that matters most is the freedom that comes from obeying God. Secondly, I obey God, and this is beautiful, because God alone is worth obeying. If you believe any authority is out to infringe on your freedom, you will always find a way to rebel. Do you believe that? Anybody here ever been around a strong-willed kid? How do they handle it when somebody who uh, is in an authority role tells them not to do something? Some of us were that strong-willed kid. I love this story about a mom who had two kids. One was five and one was just a baby. Mom's in the kitchen. The boys are in another room. And she hears a scream from the baby. And the mother says, Billy... What's going on in there? And it's like kids come out of the womb all teed up to answer that question with this response. Nothing. It's just, that's just the classic response. Billy, something's going on. What's going on? He says, the baby just pulled my hair, and it makes me really mad. I'm not gonna, and I'm going to let him have it, Mom. The mom's still in the kitchen. No, Billy. You have to understand, the baby doesn't know. The baby doesn't understand how bad it hurts when somebody pulls somebody else's hair. The baby doesn't know. About five seconds later, there's this screech, this baby screech. And the mother says, Billy, Billy, what's going on? And Billy's response, now the baby knows. (laughs) I like that. It's the way things work in our world. I'll obey God when I want to obey God. It's interesting, some of you have heard of or maybe read portions of uh, Christopher Hitchings' book, God is Not Great. And I want you to listen to what he says about this God who initiated a love relationship with us and has just asked us to follow him, to love him and to obey him. 
his comment. If the Bible were true, it would be a disaster because it would mean living eternally under, under a divine totalitarian despot. It would be like living in a celestial North Korea, but worse, because at least you can die to get out of North Korea. Question. Is that the God of the Bible? A totalitarian despot who demands our obedience, who's harsh and rigid? I think of Psalm 103, maybe one of my favorite favorite psalms. And among other things, uh, the psalmist says this. As the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on us. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we're but dust. Or John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who says in 1 John 4, consider the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. Or Jesus, who says, if an earthly father can bless you and give you good things, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those whom he loves? I mentioned before that the Ten Commandments, they're not a standalone set of rules. They were given to a people who had only known slavery. And they're given in the context of relationship. And I think you've studied a good bit about the covenant and what a covenant is and what it means. You know, recent archaeological discoveries have uh, allowed, um, you know, Bible scholars and uh, excavators uh, to ferret out all sorts of different covenants that were made between people. And normally, normally, when a covenant it was was made, it was always uh, made uh, w- initiated by someone who was uh, in a position of power, who had more power, and who wanted something from the lesser person. And uh, the, the term that you've probably unpacked together for that kind of covenant is a unilateral covenant. There's a bilateral covenant that's like this, and then there's a unilateral covenant that goes like this. And what God has done is that he has made a covenant with his people. Not because he wants to get anything from us. He initiated a covenant with us because of love. Think about what we received as the benefits of this covenant. Forgiveness of our sin. Security in heaven. Dignity. Hope. Righteousness, life. Have you ever thought about this? What did God get out of the covenant? This unilateral covenant that he made with us? What what was the payoff for him? (laughs) You know what he got? He got a bunch of rebellious, stiff-necked, stubborn sons and daughters uh, to love. And he knew everything about us. He knew... When he made this covenant with us, he knew that we would bring him heartache, that we would be ungrateful, 
that we would wander into darkness and sin. What does God get, get out of the covenant? Somebody to bless. Somebody to love. Which is why the writers in the Old Testament were just so undone by this notion of a covenant-making God that they repeated this phrase um, 285 times. He's not just God. He's the God of the covenant. No other God had ever done what God has done for us. Here's the phrase. We were made to be free, not from God, but for God. Paul said that this way. You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to freedom. Freedom is really good. Sadly, some of you people, some of you men are in churches that are uh, narrow, where there's cultivated anger and cynicism, very legalistic. That's not what God wants. Paul says, don't use your, your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another uh, humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this command, love your neighbor as yourself. I had an interesting conversation with somebody at the end of last week, and this is basically what they said. I, I believe the word of God. I really do, and I want to live by it. But here's the statement they made. I just want to be able to sin in moderation when it becomes handy, quote, unquote. Last week, Sandy, Sunday morning, Sandy talked about our sexuality. And God has very clear rules for our sexuality. And, you know, we're living in a day where people are basically saying, it's my body. Whether that has to do with keeping a baby or that has to do with sexual purity, it's my body. I can do with it what I want. Sex is no big deal. But it's not meaningless. God was very clear about how we are to steward our bodies. God was very clear about how we confront racism. God was very clear about how we are to steward our assets. And I remember a phrase that somebody said to me years ago, God said it, I believe it, and that what? That settles it. Here's the kicker, guys. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. God said it. That settles it. And this world will be a whole lot easier if we let God be God and to see that this roadmap for living is not restrictive, not constrictive, but it's designed to set us free, free to live for him. And I say this last thing about freedom before we we bring this together because I think this is important. Sometimes there's a gap between who you want to be and who you are, practical atheism. Because you're filled with so much regret, so much shame over stuff that you've done in the past, you can't free yourself from all that junk. had a conversation with a a woman recently, and uh, she, she, she helped me see this in a new way. Basically, she was saying, I just can't get beyond the mistakes I've made. And I feel like I've got to clean myself up. I've got to fix myself. I've got to get it right in order to be pleasing and acceptable to God. And she used this analogy. She says, you know, I've got a gym membership, but I'm so out of shape, I'm embarrassed to go. So I've got to 
on my own late at night walk and try to get in shape so I won't feel so awkward and bad about going to the gym to get in shape. I'm like, you know what? A lot of us do that spiritually. And here's the beautiful thing. You've been freed from all that. Jesus said, here's the new covenant. You broke the old one. This new covenant, your relationship with God is based on my obedience, not on yours, on my performance, not on yours. Uh, Jesus says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Freedom. Not freedom from God, but free for God. So my hope, brothers, as we, as we try to um, incarnate Deuteronomy, that we will see that it's, it's been given to us not as regulations and rules and intellectual precepts to agree with and maybe follow, but rather, but rather, see the wisdom and truth of God as a gift to us, reminding us, telling us, this is the way life is designed to be lived. And if you embrace these truths, it won't restrict you. It won't confine you. It'll set you free to be the person that God has designed for you to be. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So go out today and live that a joyful freedom for God to be the man that God intends you to be. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for these truths from your word, truths that you have preserved for us. Your word is alive, it's active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and we pray that it'll pierce our hearts today. Help us to see uh, the value of your word for what it is and what it's not. Help us to see that you've called us uh, to embrace um, a a way of living that's right, that's been designed just like you designed creation, and that in living that life, we might experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Free us up to live that life today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great morning, guys.